University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. We'll take a look at the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 1. We are continuing in our series, Start With Why. We are examining the core values of UBC. We are God-centered, rely on the Bible's authority, embrace equality, engage in discipleship, and love others. A few weeks ago, and it's been a few weeks, we zeroed in on the first part of Bible authority. And we're going to pick up here in the second part today. We discovered that the Word of God is more than just 800,000 words bound into a large book. The Word of God is inconceivable, breathing life into existence, stepping into human flesh, enlightening us into something beyond this life, and inviting all of us onto a journey of faith. So let's dig a little deeper in John chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people were gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order for a basis of accusing him. You've heard me say it once, you'll hear me say it a thousand times. Context is important in interpreting scripture. Jesus has been in the countryside of Galilee. He's been preaching the good news of the gospel. He's been performing miracles. Then he visits Jerusalem for a special festival. And there Jesus teaches in the temple courts. This wasn't uncommon for, for Jesus. For there be teachers and pseudo-prophets and wannabe messiahs to gather others around them. The problem is that Jesus was amassing a large crowd and teaching them in a way that people had never heard before. John tells us the people were amazed and mesmerized by his teaching. This catches the attention of the chief priest who ran the temple, the ruling religious elite called the Sadducees, and then there were the Pharisees. John chapter 7 reports an encounter with religious leaders where they questioned Jesus in such a way where they were trying to entrap him. We will learn early in the Gospel of John, they really were trying to kill him from the very beginning. And the story carries over into chapter 8 where John tells us that there Jesus is teaching. A woman is drugged before them by the Pharisees. Now, who were the Pharisees? This is a group of uh, local priests at synagogues or the temple. They were, they, were, they were not those things. They were experts in the law. Their concern was the teaching and practice of the law. The easiest way for us to grasp the passion of the people is just imagine them as people who really, really want to obey the Bible. And that's not a bad idea. Their mindset was to follow Scripture as closely as possible. They also believed that if everyone else would follow the scripture as close as possible, that God would bring the people out of their present state of being under the thumb of the Roman Empire. It's a great idea, but the application we see here in our text is quite off. So they bring this woman caught in adultery before Jesus, and they say that the law of Moses demands that she be stoned to death. Well, let's see what the law of Moses says. 
According to Deuteronomy and Leviticus, which contains most of the scripture that we refer to as the laws given to Moses, these are in sense commentaries on top of the Ten Commandments given to Moses in the book of Exodus. Commandment numero siete. You shall not commit adultery. Just in case the Hebrew people didn't catch on to this, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22 says, If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man and the woman who slept with her must die. You must purge this evil from Israel. This repeats again in Leviticus 20.10. These laws, just in case the people didn't get it, spell it out as plain as they possibly can. But the law of Moses doesn't stop there. According to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 2 through 7, if it is true and has been provided and detestable thing done to Israel, take that man and woman who has done evil deeds outside of the city gates and stone that person to death. Good to know that the testimony of one to two people will end with somebody literally throwing stones at you until you die. So according to the law of Moses... The Pharisees are right. Let's stone this woman. When religious people are charged with the task of interpreting their holy text, it can be challenging. In reality, there is no great uniformity to bring in belief by this authorized holy book that guides people into a certain way of living. Yet it can also be a very dangerous task when religious people are called to interpret God's word. When you take the Bible understood to be the word of God for the people of God, it becomes a struggle of authority as to who will interpret it and who will implement it among God's people. It's an even greater danger for us as flawed creatures to be employed to read such holy text. The New Testament writers gives us several examples of uh, placed in the hands of southern pastors both before, during, and after the Civil War, how scripture can be used to justify the most horrendous treatment of other human beings. Just close your eyes and imagine a southern pastor during the Civil War reading First Peter chapter 2. Slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who it should be harsh, for it is commendable for someone to bear up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. It happened when the Spaniards and Portuguese were quoting scripture to justify the conquest and enslavement of the indigenous people of Latin America. When scripture says that God gave humans dominion over the earth, then you can see how someone can take it and run with it and ravage and deplete the earth of all of its resources. The danger of interpretation has led various groups throughout history to use text uh, of church discipline and militant texts like in the Hebrew text to do inhumane things like burn reformers and Anabaptists and so-called witches and heretics at the stake because nothing says the love of Jesus like tying someone to a pyre and lighting them on fire. But we have just got warmed up and yet the Pharisees took the law given to Moses and interpreted it as clearly as they could. And we can't judge the Pharisees too much. They're doing this out of their love for God and love for God's laws. They're doing this based on their interpretation of God's word. Yet this is the first thing that we need to begin to understand about the Bible's authority. Interpretation matters because 
The Bible is complicated. The intriguing and challenging thing about translating God's Word is that it requires for us to think deeply about God's Word. The Bible isn't as cut and dry as we try to make it out to be. There are passages that are written metaphorically and others allegorically. There are texts that are intended to be taken literal and others that are intended to be figurative. Some texts are intended to be historical records while others are deep spiritual laments. There are texts that are black and white, while others were written to cause the readers to enter into more questions than answers. The Bible is extremely complicated. And anyone who would tell you otherwise has clearly never wrestled with the challenge of the God who calls for mass genocide of men, women, and children in the Old Testament, and the same God who calls us to love, serve, and bless, and never strike back in the New Testament candidates for the most bitterly contested theological and moral issues over the last 2,000 years of Christian histories, issues that have determined Christian based on, quote, our scriptural interpretation are plenty. You and I can read the same verse of scripture and come away with drastically different perspectives on things like the role of marriage, gender equality, racial equality, Alcohol, war, economic systems, the end of time, separation of church and state, marriage, sexuality, on and on and on. You see, the statement the Bible says is quite complicated. It's not as easy as we want to make it out to be. But beyond the reading of our text, whether allegorical or literal or dramatic or metaphorical, there still remains the original context of Scripture. Who wrote it? Who were they writing to? What circumstances were they writing about? All of these things matter. You see, interpretation matters because it's a complicated document that we are encountering. A couple years ago when Madison uh, was in fourth grade preschool, during the first week of class, you can imagine the conversations the teachers would ask. So the teacher said, uh, who are you? And tell us about what you like. And you can imagine the range of the deep love of Sophia the First uh, to Spider-Man, from the color pink to the deep philosophy of Daniel Tiger, if you never encountered him. And one little boy in Madison's class started to share. My name is Cody. I love my dog, Mr. Pickles. And my favorite team is NC State Wolfpack. Boo! We don't like them, the boy's response was given. Who interrupted this child? my four-year-old daughter. Because one thing is clear in our household is our dislike for all things North Carolina State Wolfpack. The first thing Madison learned was that we don't make this symbol with our hands. It is, in fact, just as vulgar as another symbol you can make with your hands. She was taught from an early age what was ugly and what was offensive. There are other teams, of course, um, my child has learned we don't like, from the Dallas Cowboys to the New England Patriots, the Detroit Red Wings to Atlanta Braves, the Auburn Tigers to any team that Urban Meyer is coaching. (laughs) See, every time Madison and I sit down to watch a sport, uh, she always asks this question first, Daddy, which team are we pulling for? And I've impressed something on my child, a certain bias that she sees certain sports team as villainous specifically anything Urban Meyer is involved with. You see, one thing we fail to recognize as we read and interpret Scripture is that all of us bring a bias when it comes to our interpretation of the Word. 
Everything that we see, think, speak, and do each day is seen through a particular perspective. These perspectives have shaped the way that we have been taught, what we believe to be true and untrue, our experiences and the things that we have witnessed in our lives. Take, for example, when you sit and listen or read the news. You either automatically turn to one particular channel or the other, CNN, Fox News, or MSNBC. You see, due to your particular opinion, you know in your mind who you believe to be right and wrong, who you're going to get a fair assessment of the current situation of things. This is all seen through your biased perspective of the world. It's often integrated in the way that we watch our news networks or don't watch certain news networks. You see, if we have a certain bias when it comes to the primary resource that we receive updates of what's happening in the world and politics and economics and our culture, what makes us think that we don't bring a bias to when we read God's Word. Every time that you and I open the Word of God, we bring our experience, our culture, our philosophical, our political and theological perspectives into how we interpret the Word. The way that we have learned to interpret Scripture is determined often in advance for us. With all of these biases that we bring into interpreting the Word of God, it becomes a challenging question to ask, do we shape our interpretation of Scripture, or does Scripture shape our interpretation of the world? Stop and think about that for just a second. Do we shape our interpretation of Scripture, or does Scripture shape our interpretation of the world? If I have one superpower in this life, it is that I am directionally gifted. Uh, you can put me into a new area, and within a matter of a day, I learn. So within a couple days of being in Baton Rouge, I, don't have, I didn't have to use the GPS anymore. It's just, that's God's gift to me, I guess. <laughs> so a strange thing happened to me a couple weeks ago. I, I left home at the normal time for a Wednesday morning to get, get to the church. So I left home about 8 o'clock. Um, Monday or Tuesday morning, I try to get to the office between 6.30 and 7, quiet time, get things done, but this is a Wednesday, 8 o'clock. So I came to Burbank and tried to turn onto Lee, and I was came by a, just immediate stop of traffic. Traffic was backed up from the light on Highland all the way back to the McDonald's on Lee Drive. I mean, it was at a gridlock. And I looked up, there was no police lights. I looked on my, my GPS to see if there was some sort of accident happening. It took three cycles sitting at the light on Lee in order to turn right onto Highland Drive. What was the context? Well, the entire summer, I hadn't to deal with the fact that LSU wasn't in session. And now this particular context of this particular week at 8 a.m., 40,000 people are now converging onto the same area. Context matters. You see, when we have preconceived notions about Scripture, when we come with these biases, we must also understand that context matters for Scripture. Context and source matters. Consider for just a second, who wrote this thing we call the Bible? Who were they? Why does authorship matter? Consider the original audience who they were writing to. Who were these people? What particular situations were they writing about? How does the historical event surrounding this book matter to this group of people? Why does it matter for helping us understand what we are reading? 
Consider the original language of Scripture. Why does it matter that it was written in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek? What does it matter, despite our best efforts, that sometimes there is not an English word that properly translates the original text that we have? This raises so many questions and challenges us not to just think loosely about Scripture, but to think deeply, to think critically about Scripture, to understand the, the sources and context of what's happening. And then consider the Bible itself. Is this document literally dictated every single word by God to human beings? Or was it a document written fully by human hand? Or was it a document that is dynamic, both fully human and fully divine, that inspires the people who, who wrote it to, to have their experience of God laid out before us? How does our understanding of Scripture in its context shape our lives? And with all these things considered, do you see that interpreting Scripture is both simultaneously exciting and challenging? Consider it to be when you consider the complexities of Scripture. As you read and interpret and apply it to your lives, we begin to see these religious Pharisees who brought this woman caught in adultery before Jesus. How often, like them, have we tried to take the word of God to bludgeon others in judgment? The text wraps up here in verse 6. They were using this question to trap him in order for a basis of accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard him began to walk away one at a time, excuse me, the oldest ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. You see, this story personifies who Jesus is, plain and simple. Given the opportunity to use the word of God to condemn this woman and to take her life, Jesus shows something different. Let that sink in for just a second. Given the opportunity to judge and condemn and literally take this woman's life, Jesus chose something different. This woman had two handfuls of religious laws that were going against her, yet Jesus chose the greater law, the law of love. You see, love has the power to drive down to the root of the heart of our intentions. In the face of Jesus' love, these religious leaders caved on their convictions, their judgment, and their plans. One by one, they dropped their stones, realizing their immense guilt against the law and recognizing God's overwhelming grace in their life. That's an intense love that God has for us. What Jesus has done in this moment is to teach the Pharisees and this woman in us something very significant. Scripture is not designed for us to simply read and interpret and put into action. The Word of God is intended to be an enhancement of how we relate to and communicate with God. When seen through love, the Word of God takes on new life and new meaning. This is exactly what Jesus has done in this moment. He has lived out the Word of God through love. 
When seen through love, the Word of God can only heal instead of destroy, give life instead of death, forgive instead of condemn, call for healthy change instead of judgment. As we encounter Jesus in this story, this woman's life was transformed by the living, loving Word of God. Love saved her. It gave her life. It called her into something greater and called her to be something different as a result of this. The scripture defines God as love. So how we read and interpret and put into action God's word matters through the lens of love. In order to read and interpret and live out the word of God through love, you must experience the love of God in your life. This is why this encounter with Jesus teaches us something significant about the way that we relate, relate to Scripture. When you simply read and interpret and put Scripture uh, apart from your journey from God, the Bible is no different than any other book of history, of poems, of sayings and stories and wisdom. I think this is what the Pharisees' error was. They simply were reading and regurgitating this law of God, but deeply relating to the Word of God. Journeying with God each day helps shape and transform the way that we take in and live out the Word of God in our life. I'll openly admit to you um, that I'm a great husband. Um, I'm not going to buy myself the world's greatest husband coffee mug. I'm sure there's one out there. You see, I can do sweet things at times. I can take my wife out on dates and buy her flowers, give her words of encouragement. I can do my part around the house. I can take care of the yard. I can clean. I can take care of the kids. I can work really hard to provide for my family. I can show affection the best of anybody in this room. I can be a really great husband. But I also can be a really bad husband. At times, I get consumed with my work and fail to set time apart to devote to my family. I can fail to put work down and shut it off for the day. I can forget to plan ahead for times to go out on dates and just spend time together. At the end of the day, I can sometimes just plop down on the couch and just want to just watch something on TV instead of taking the time to actively talk and listen. I can be sarcastic and sensitive at times. Marriage is a blessing, but it also takes work. It's a deep partnership, one that requires both to actively pursue each other. And that's what I want us to see from the scripture this morning. The scripture is an invitation for us to pursue God. In pursuing God, we recognize that it's a mutual partnership, something that is a blessing, something that takes work. The problem is many of us in our relationship with the word of God is more of passive and pedestrian, more than active and extraordinary. As one author argues, the 21st century is an era of paradox for the local congregation. On one hand, most homes in the United States have Bibles and revere them as the word of God. On the other hand, most adults in this country do not read the Bible. Most of us form our understanding of what the church believes, either through exaggerated exposés of the media, big-name pastors and authors, or through limited experience. The spiritual hunger of our time, I believe, is great. I would argue that faith has become a consumer product in the 21st century. But that's not what God is inviting us into. God is inviting us to pursue God, pursue God's word, to be consumed with it, to help shape and form us into something different, into something more. Is your journey with God's word something passive 
or something active. I dare you to dream a different way of existing with God and interacting with God's word. But don't just stop there. I dare you to grow deeper and wider as a community of people with God. Can you imagine what would take place within this faith community if we dug into the word together? We wrestled through the challenging aspects of faith together. We asked those difficult questions together if we dared to journey together in Christ. Scripture and the journey of faith is not designed to be a solitary journey. Rebel against the consumer faith that convinces us that a loose sense of companionship of of a faith journey is all that God desires. As one author put it, I guess you could say the Bible is a book that doesn't try to tell us what to think. Instead, it tries to teach us how to think. It stretches us to think, to challenge us to what is bigger and harder than we can ever imagine. So UBC, may we set out on this new way of thinking as we follow Jesus, this living word of God, into a new way of living.